Hello, and welcome to Inside Policy Talks, the premier video podcast of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, Ottawa's most influential public policy think tank. At the Macdonald-Laurier Institute, we harness the power of Canada's brightest minds to tackle Canada's greatest challenges. Learn more at macdonaldlaurier.ca. Hi, everybody. Uh, Aaron Woodrick here. I'm the Director of the Domestic Policy Program at the McDonald-Laurie Institute. Welcome to the vodcast today. Uh, very pleased today to be joined by Malcolm Lavoie, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta and the author of a great new book entitled Trade and Commerce, Canada's Economic Constitution. Malcolm, thanks so much for joining us today to talk about your book. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I guess the obvious question first is what's uh, what sort of stimulated your interest to write mm -hmm. on this topic? A lot of people, when they think about the Constitution, they're not thinking about it from the perspective of, of it having an economic vision. Yeah. So what's what was sort of your inspiration behind writing this? Yeah, that's a great question. So so as you as you alluded to, the, the book is about uh, the Constitution and the economy in particular. I argue there's an economic vision underlying the Constitution, commitment to uh, free interprovincial trade, economic integration, but also decentralized decision-making uh, on economic issues. Um, and the motivation to write it really stems from a case called RV Como. Uh, this was, some people might remember this, this, this was the case of the, the, beer uh, case. the beer case. Yeah, exactly. The budget conscious beer shopper, Gerard Como, who uh, went from his home in New Brunswick to Quebec to get cheap beer, ended up getting pulled over, get, get a ticket, his beer confiscated essentially for possession of out-of-province beer. He challenged this as being uh, unconstitutional on the basis of Section 121, which essentially says goods from one province are to be admitted free into another. Uh, he was successful at trial, but uh, unsuccessful when the case went to the Supreme Court of Canada. The Supreme Court of Canada, uh, you know, read Section 121, this free trade clause, in a very, uh, uh, let's say, permissive manner in terms of what it allows governments uh, to do. And so I wrote an article about this case, uh, ended up getting involved uh, for an intervener and, and argued the, the case uh, at, at the Supreme Court. And I remember sitting there during the hearing, it was, it was clear it wasn't going well for those of us who were, were favoring um, free trade. Um, and there was a particular interaction between Justice uh, Malcolm Rowe uh, from Newfoundland, who, you know, he's, he's a great judge, but uh, when he's up there on the bench, you, you always know, how, you know what he's thinking. Uh, he's very candid. Um, and he said, essentially, uh, well, you're, you're trying to tell us that the Constitution's committed to free interprovincial trade, but uh, the stru structural provisions of the Constitution, they don't have an, uh, they don't have an orientation. Um, mm -hmm. They're mm -hmm. about, you know, granting authority. They're not about policies. Yeah. There's, no, there's no economic policy in the Constitution. I remember sitting there and thinking, well, that's just wrong. Um, <laughs> and I clearly didn't get over it because here I am, you know, several years later, and I've written a book about it where I say, no, you know, there's actually some sense to the, the, the yeah. for example, the heads of power that are given to parliament versus provincial legislatures, sure. how the executive, uh, legislative and judicial branches are structured. They're oriented towards a particular vision of the constitution. Right. And so, I mean, that, that, that is the question I think a lot of folks would point to is they'd say, well, are you, are you suggesting that the constitution has a policy preference, right? And maybe perhaps yeah. Justice Rowe's argument as well, you know, the constitution says nothing about policy purposes, but that's not exactly your argument, mm -hmm. is it? I mean, it's yeah. not about a policy preference. It's about the powers that each level of governments has. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So there, there are purposes and then there are how those purposes are, are, are given effect. Right. So when you're interpreting a statute or a constitution, um, 
you're supposed to look at part, partly to the text, but also partly to the purposes uh, that the text is trying to achieve. Um, and when you read through the text um, and you look to the, the, the time when the Constitution was enacted, um, one of the clear purposes of that, of that document uh, is to provide for free interprovincial trade, free, free trade among uh, what were then the British North American colonies. This is, uh, you know, reiterated over and over again in the Confederation debates. Um, and then you see it, um, you know, when you read through the Constitution, you see it in Section 121, which essentially says we're going to have free trade between the provinces. But you also see it in the types of powers that are allocated to the federal uh, parliament versus the provincial legislatures. Provincial legislatures, I argue in the book, have essentially, uh, you know, by default, they have uh, jurisdiction over most economic questions under the property and civil rights power, um, sort of gives them a power to govern most economic relations. But then when you look through the federal heads of power, you can think of those as exceptions to this preference for decentralization. And and, and there's, there's a thread that runs through those federal heads of power, uh, which is that these tend to be matters that can't be effectively dealt with at a local level. Um, in, in many cases, due to the potential for a collective action problem, that if you right. leave it to the provinces, uh, they're going to pr pursue protectionist policies, pursue local interests um, at the expense of outsiders. And so whenever you have a policy area where a provincial legislature would have the power to, say, disadvantage producers in another province, that's a head of power that typically is allocated to the, to the federal uh, government, including you know, economic relations between provinces, the interprovincial trade power. Um, uh, a branch of the trade and commerce power is an underappreciated federal power, I think. Right. Now, yeah, I mean, you, you also argue in this book um, that perhaps one of the, the, the challenges is that in recent years, the Supreme Court has adopted what you call a flex flexible federalism mm -hmm. and that that's at odds with with the economic vision that you say the Constitution really outlines. Can you maybe explain what you mean by that? Sure, sure. So maybe the starting point is a, a good starting point is the text of sections 91 and 92, which which allocate most of the federal and provincial heads of power. Um, and the, the word exclusive uh, appears at least a half dozen times in, in section 91 and 92. The, the constitution uh, repeats to the point of redundancy that the federal and provincial heads of power are meant to be exclusive. So something given to the feds is implicitly denied to the provinces uh, and vice versa. And, and, and the Privy Council, when that was our final court of appeal, and even in the early days after the Supreme Court of Canada became the last court of appeal in 1949 for the, for a few, for the first few decades, the courts kept to that. They, they basically tried to um, enforce a scheme of mutual exclusivity. Um, however, in recent decades, that's become deeply unfashionable. Um, mm -hmm. And there's been this move towards flexible federalism, this idea that, well, as long as there's a link uh, as long as you know the the overall purpose of a statute, say, is to uh, regulate something under provincial jurisdiction, then it's okay if it also implicit or or you know as a secondary matter uh, deals with uh, a, a range of federal matters and and vice versa. Um, I argue that's a problem and that that undermines some of the purposes of of the economic constitution in a couple of respects. So first of all, you know, I argue that the constitution is committed to local autonomy, provincial autonomy as a presumptive matter on economic questions. And the big, uh, I, I, you know, the big way in which that's protected is the idea that provincial authority is exclusive, right? Mm -hmm. That you're not going to have overlapping federal uh, authority. Because when you have overlapping federal authority, there's a doctrine called paramountcy, uh, which says that essentially the, you know, when you have an inconsistency, the federal statute prevails. So the more overlap you have, uh, the more you have a situation where provinces are subject to this supervening authority of right. the Fed. So exclusivity protects provincial autonomy. At the same time, though, 
Um, federal heads of power are also exclusive, and that also serves a purpose, right? When you have a federal power over interprovincial trade, or you have a federal power over, say, currency, these sort of basic structural features of the economy, um, uh, that's because you can't necessarily rely on local governments to regulate those matters effectively. And if you do allow for, say, provincial measures that are gumming up interprovincial trade, you have a situation where you have a cumulative effect of lots of provincial measures. Uh, that together undermine uh, the free trade that we're supposed to have among the provinces. And so it also matters that the federal heads of power um, are exclusive. And so I think the move towards flexible federalism is actually inconsistent with uh, the economic vision of the Constitution. We should be getting back to uh, a scheme of you know, greater exclusivity uh, that protects those federal heads of power from being gummed up by uh, local measures that don't account for the national interest, but at the same time that protect provincial autonomy in those areas uh, where you don't need federal authority to have effective policymaking. Okay, I'm, I want to get to, uh, of course, what what you think, uh, what, what proposals could help restore that approach. But mm -hmm. first, I, I'm curious as to what, in your view, you know, what was the first case, or at what point did the court sort of change its approach? I, I think it's fair to say a lot of us who, who you know, constitutional yeah. law nerds, uh, you know, have seen the court sort of twist themselves into knots to try and avoid the plain meaning of words. Like you say, exclusivity appears a lot in there. Uh, that has not seemed to carry weight. Section 121 as well. Hmm. I, I think in the Como case, people sort of felt uh, a lot of legal observers just head scratching how the court could interpret it the way they did. You know, was there was there a particular uh, trend or a set of cases where you sort of saw this change in terms of adopting this flexible federalism? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it begins in it begins in the late 1980s. I don't know if it's necessarily uh, caused by the charter. The charter, um, you know. Put, put more of an emphasis on uh, sort of non-economic rights. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was also a, a, maybe a shift in judicial ideology towards wanting to uh, take a more permissive approach to economic regulation to sort of get the constitution out of the way of, of good faith efforts by both orders of government to, sure. um, to regulate the economy. Um, and yeah, and, and, and there, I mean, there's something to that, right? You don't want to have an overly strict policing of exclusivity where you completely, you know, render it impractical to, uh, to, to regulate certain matters. You know, it's hard to, it's hard to say regulate something under provincial jurisdiction without touching anything under federal jurisdiction. You, you, sh you should be allowed to have a little bit of overlap as long as it's necessary to what you're trying to achieve. Um, but I think we've gotten past that. We've gotten beyond that towards, um, an undue level of uh, of um, of flexibility and having provinces that are able to um, uh, you know indirectly regulate interprovincial trade and create these trade barriers and at the same time you know the the problem of of the feds taking an overly expansive understanding of their authority you know the impact assessment act um, you know, mm -hmm. which was recently at the Supreme Court of Canada is a good example of this where you know they were careful in their drafting to anchor it in a series of federal heads of power. Um, but then they say, well, anything that's connected to those federal heads of power, anything that's connected to navigable waters or indigenous yeah. lands, uh, you know, we claim a power to be able to ultimately veto that that project. Um, and that's kind of what I mean by flexible federalism, where you're saying, uh, you know, uh, it's not just, you know, things that are strictly necessary, say, for, um, you know, uh, fisheries or, or indigenous lands or some other federal heads of heads of power. It's anything that's sort of uh, you know, more indirectly related to that. Um, and so there's, there's been a shift in ideology. I think it's partly that um, people uh, are less likely to understand the pr economic purposes behind the Constitution. Mm -hmm. um, I think those would have been more salient, uh, say, before the 1980s. 
uh, you know, there's just not been a lot of scholarship on some of these on, you know, federalism in particular, economic federalism within uh, uh, the the world of legal scholarship in the past three or four decades. There's there's some, but but not a whole lot, and and a lot of the attention went to uh, went to the charter and other areas of constitutional sure. law. So I think that might partly explain it. Well, that's certainly why your book is yeah. uh, so welcome right now because of the lack of that. I'm mm-hmm. curious too if you think it has anything to do with uh, it maybe a sort of the 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 court's concern about. Um, trying to avoid political controversy. I mean, it's a lot easier for a court to say, you know, why can't we all just get along and we'll just start splitting the difference because that's a lot easier than the court mm-hmm. coming down and saying, actually, no, you can't do this. Um, yeah. is, is there anything to that uh, argument mm-hmm. that maybe courts are just trying to to take the path of least resistance here? Yeah, maybe, you know, maybe on some areas that's true. I mean, it, it's interesting and I hadn't, I've never, I've never sort of thought of it this way before, but at the same time as courts were becoming more activist, um, in say their interpretation of the charter, yeah, um, they sort of took a more permissive tack on federalism issues. Uh, not, you know, not in all cases. They're, occasionally, they'll strike strike a measure down on federalism grounds. But they've, as an overall tendency, adopted this much more permissive approach in federalism cases, while at the same time uh, not hesitating uh, to strike legislation down on charter grounds. Um, you know, I, I it'd, be, it'd be sort of speculating uh, mm-hmm. to say, you know, what's the psychological uh you know cause of that um but it might be yeah partly a greater greater attention to the charter or uh maybe implicitly a, a desire to use that political capital that they perceive themselves to have on on uh on sort of charter related issues as opposed to federalism issues i'm not quite sure Sure. And it seems like it would almost inevitably be a one way street there. Right. Like when you have this flexible federalism, you know, between that and and the doctrine of paramountcy, it's going to mean more and more powers for the feds and less and less for the provinces. And that, again, in a country that's a federal uh, federal country for a reason, I think sort of starts to open up other uh, um, cans of worms politically. But um, I I wanted to get to the uh, sorry, to to the. the proposals like so how do we get back on track here if we've sort of yeah. gone awry with flexible federalism um how do we how do we get back to what the constitution you know what you, in your view mm-hmm. really says how, yeah. how can the court sort of take an approach and, and align with with uh, the true meaning of the constitution yeah yeah well probably the number one uh sort of recommendation in terms of constitutional interpretation would be that we have to give effect to those words um, in sections 91 and 92 that refer to exclusivity over and over again, that say these heads of powers, are, these heads of power are, are exclusive. Um, if you're if you're taking the sort of extreme flexible approach, where as long as you have some rational connection to a broader scheme within, say, provincial or federal jurisdiction, it's okay to affect the other order of government. Um, you know, I, I think that fails to give effect to this idea of exclusivity. That essentially says as long as there's some connection. Um, to what you're supposed to be uh, legislating on, uh, we're going to give it a pass. And whether that connection is a strong one or a weak one, um, I think you know specifically in terms of you know legal doctrine, what we could do is we could say we're not going to you know use this rational and functional connection approach. Instead, we're going to say you know if you're go- if you're intruding on if you've got a, 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 an ancillary measure in a federal law that's intruding on provincial jurisdiction. Um, that measure has to be necessary to the federal purpose of your scheme. It can't mm. just be rationally connected um, or functionally connected. It has to actually be necessary if you're going to have that sort of secondary aspect of the law that intrudes on provincial jurisdiction. I think that would go a long way. Much higher um, bar to reach. Yeah, yeah. yeah you have to, and, and, and the onus would be on the enacting level of government to, to establish that they really do need to do this. So okay. um, if you're, uh, you know, say, 
you know, vetoing provincial natural resources projects on the basis of their effects on fisheries, um, you know, that has to actually be necessary to achieve a purpose related to fisheries. It can't just be something that's um, rationally connected to it, to use the, you know, the example of the Impact Assessment Act. So that, that would go a long way. Um, you know, there, there are also aspects of this that relate to political will. Um, so on economic matters in particular, um, Parliament hasn't fully exercised the powers that it could exercise mm. um, to help ensure greater economic integration. There's a whole bunch of examples you could give of areas where the feds have essentially um, you know, failed to, 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 to regulate harmonization, where they could, they could harmonize the laws. And so one example of that would be um, interprovincial trucking. Uh, so, you know, there was a Senate report a number of years ago that detailed the differences in regulations uh, from one province to the next. Uh, in extreme cases, you have uh, configurations that are mandatory in one province, but prohibited in the next province. You have to actually change the, the tires or the configuration of the, of the truck at the provincial border. There's jurisprudence that clearly establishes that interprovincial trucking is under federal jurisdiction. Um, all the feds would have to do is enact un uniform legislation um, for interprovincial trucking, and they and they could uh, and they could solve some of these problems. And th that that's just one example. You could have broader legislation too, where under the interprovincial trade power, for example, um, where the feds sort of mandate through legislation that there's going to be free interprovincial trade, um, and, and and that the then that that requirement takes priority over any provincial measure unless that measure is necessary to achieve a provincial purpose. Um, and sort of use paramountcy as a, as a tool to um, create freer trade, and that's that's something the feds can I, I think arguably do unilaterally. Um, you know, we've been pursuing this model of federal provincial agreements where uh, everyone commits to the principle of free trade, but then you have hundreds of pages of specific exceptions. Um, yeah. And you know, that's just interest group politics, right? At the sure. local level, um, you know, interest groups lobby for their own uh, exceptions. Um, I think. I think it's possible for the feds to simply short circuit that and enact some of these requirements um, through federal legislation and not have to get the provinces on board and use paramountcy as a, as a tool to um, uh, overcome inconsistent provincial laws. Okay, that's great. Well, this is a, a great book. Uh, I think yeah. a long time coming. The book is Trade and Commerce, yeah. Canada's Economic Constitution. Yeah. And um, yep. And you can find it on Amazon.ca and some other online retailers. Uh, I certainly encourage you to do that. Um, I want to thank all of you for, uh, for joining us. Uh, thank you, uh, Malcolm, for joining us. And to our viewers and listeners, we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Aaron.